This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, Back out in restaurants at the Henri restaurant. Right across the street from the famous Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. Close to the White House. Close to the FBI. We'll be talking about both those places as our conversation continues. Uh, And our guest this week, Mark Short. So if you've seen any video of Vice President Pence, you usually see Mark Short right over either his right or his left shoulder. Uh, Close advisor of the former Vice President. Mark, it's great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Major, thanks for having me back on the takeout. So uh, for my audience's benefit, in what capacity are you here? Should they hear your voice as essentially an echo of the Vice President? No, I don't. I don't pretend to speak for the vice president. I, I'm I'm here uh, in my own capacity. Uh, somebody who uh, major. We've been friends for many You've years. We've known each other for a long and, time. Uh, absolutely, conservative activist. Uh, I fortunately am, have the opportunity to teach a little bit uh, these days on mm-hmm. a couple college campuses. I'm obviously engaged in the political environment, and right. I, I still do work with the vice president. But right. I don't. I don't pretend to speak for him. Understood. Um, have you had a chance to read? Because this is really the news item of the morning as we tape this on, uh, what's the date, kids? The 31st of August. Um, Overnight, just the night before, the Justice Department put together a rather extensive filing in response to former President Trump's request for a special master related to the search at Mar-a-Lago. Have you had a chance to either read it or... Under, come to an understanding of what it asserts. Yeah, I've not, I've not read it in detail, Major, but certainly have read a lot of the press clippings around it. And uh, Any reaction not... top line from you yeah, about I... what it means and what it, it should be viewed as? Yeah, I think it's hard just to give a quick soundbite on mm-hmm. it, Major. Because, I don't want you to. Because my belief is that, for your listeners, this has to be something taken in context. And that broader context is that you know, when when Donald Trump was elected president, one of the first encounters he had was candidly with the FBI director lying to him lying to him saying that you're not a target of an investigation when clearly the FBI, we now know, was working and continuing to push a fake dossier to go after the, the steel dossier. Yes, yes. And so I think, you know, we're looking at this, I think, two times somewhat myopically, because if you understand for many conservatives and Republicans, there is great skepticism. And I think that the DOJ and FBI, unfortunately, has an extra burden because of that, that mm-hmm. past history, to be even more transparent with the American people. 
And I think you add on to that current controversies around Hunter Biden and it's a sense of a double standard. You add on to that a reality that with Hillary Clinton, when she left office, transferred classified documents to her personal email server. And the director of the FBI comes out and says, I've looked at this and there's no need to investigate it further. Trust me, you know, there's nothing to see here. And so, again, I think that there is an extra burden in this moment for DOJ to be far more transparent. Uh, we learn more today, but I still think there's a lot more that we need to know before we can be too um, What more is on your mind that you would like to know that well, you don't know? I, I think that content within those classified documents, I think, is important for us to understand. Um, Why that, is that important? Because under the law, classified is classified, and the president can't have them. I think it's not— A fair reading of the law, as I understand yeah, it. And I don't think it's going too far on a limb to suggest that— Hillary Clinton was wrong to transfer those documents, and President Trump likely should not have been in possession of those documents. I don't think that's too far of a stretch for a rational person to say. Having said that, I think there's a lot of context missing, and I think that, again, I think there's a question for a lot of people that says, well, if, if on the one hand, in Hillary Clinton's case, we're not going to recommend further investigation, then how do we move to a position where you're actually having a raid on the former president's home? And I think some of the document today explains that there were efforts to get that information, clearly. Yes. But that still is an extraordinary step to take. And I think before more can be determined, I think there has to be continued transparency on the part of DOJ here. One of the things represented in the filing is that there was a concerted effort to engage with the former president. Mm -hmm. There was a, an exchange of documents. But subsequently, the FBI discovered, and it asserts very aggressively in this filing, that Going back a second time, misrepresentations were made, and the phrase obstruction is used in the filing, that there wasn't an effort to do this without a search and without going to this extra step, which is in any way, shape, or form extraordinary. What does that mean to you? That there wasn't, it appears, if the Justice Department, and I get, I get your skepticism and contextual hesitation to embrace everything asserted by the Justice Department, but if that's true... It reads to me like there was an effort to resolve this differently. I would agree with you on that, Major. I still think that there's probably intermediary steps before you actually send in a raid. And I do concur. I think one of the more troubling aspects of disclosures today was misrepresentations by the president's lawyers and documents to the FBI. And, and there's a big difference between playing a lawyer on TV and actually being a, a sound lawyer advising uh, the former president. And I think that that is certainly, uh, it sounds or reads as if the president has tried to rectify that with the additional people he's brought on to his legal team. Right, but they weren't there then and he has to live with the history uh, as it's written um, again there's there is a risk to just hiring people who play lawyers on tv and does it matter from your vantage point mark short that an executive order signed by president trump increased or legislation rather not executive order uh, legislation increased penalties for the mishandling of classified information and it was identified in the 2015 and 2016 campaign by Trump as a candidate, then as president, as a really important issue, and that we should do things differently and by the law. As, as we should. Absolutely we should. But again, I think we haven't been able to reach those conclusions yet, Major, till we know more about how these documents were in the president's possession, what he was doing with them, and exactly what's in them. Did the vice president, and or did you, in working with the vice president, as you moved in and out of the White House, notice anything that would or did strike you as either reckless or sloppy with the president's attitude or 
handling of classified documents. No, there was there is nothing that I witnessed in that case, and I I was privy in some occasions to actually be present for um, uh, the the president's briefings from the intelligence community. Uh, the presidential recall, daily brief. Yeah, recall I, I my, before I served as the vice president chief staff, I was President Trump's director of legislative affairs. Yes, indeed. And in, so in that capacity, you appeared on this very program. <laughs> and so I did have uh, the opportunity to be present for those, and I, I would not say that I witnessed any time that I thought the president was reckless in handling this documents. Did the vice president have a process by which to take in and handle classified documents that you observed? I think that it was a process that I think was pretty uniform across the White House and that I think those documents were to be uh, treated as as secure as, as they are. And that meant that um, that there was a, a for, for us as staff, which is different, far mm-hmm. different than a principal, like than the a principal, president or no vice question. president, but, yes. but a process that, that you, you, you signed out and returned those documents in which they were then signed and recognized. There was a very specific process yeah. and a paper trail yeah. that verified it. Yes. I think I know the answer to this question. It may seem like a ridiculous one, but I want to ask it anyway. Do you have any knowledge of whether the vice president ever took anything of a documentary basis, classified or not, from the White House or from his time as vice president? I have no knowledge of him being in possession of any of those documents upon his completion of service. I think that, that you know, as far as handling those documents and, and anything else that was in our position, our legal office took ownership of that process and made sure that everything was, was returned, boxed up, and the non-classified documents sent back to the archives. And for those in the audience who heard you initially and were like, yes, I'm so glad someone is saying this, this context, the Hillary Clinton, the James Comey, do you think we can get to a place where if this does go, and I don't know if it will or not, to an indictment or prosecution, it can be viewed as the facts themselves or will the context always haunt whatever may come of this. I think the context is going to be there, uh, Major, because I, I do believe that, unfortunately, DOJ and FBI were politicized in the previous administration, and that... To the detriment of President to Trump. To the detriment of President absolutely. I mean, I, I think when you're basically taking a false dossier and knowingly disseminating that in ways to, to continue investigations and basically lying about whether or not the president's a target of that, it's difficult for the president to trust the head of the FBI. Now... I will say that the current director of the FBI is, a Trump, by this is a Trump appointee, right. and and so and I, and I and I think he's an honorable person, and I and I and I give him the benefit of the doubt in much of this. But you're definitely going to have this cloud hanging over this debate for some time, which again is why to go back to where we started. I think there is an extra burden on DOJ and FBI to be far more transparent in this case because they've taken an extraordinary step, an extraordinary step with which in just a few years before they took an exactly opposite direction. That is the voice of Mark Short, our special guest here on. The Takeout Segment 2 coming up in just one moment. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
from CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome back to our table at Henri, the restaurant right downtown Washington, D.C. Great to be out and about again. Mark Short is our special guest. Um, we had a long conversation in the first segment about the context and the law and things like that. So it was said by someone you know somewhat well, Republican South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham in this recent week. If former President Trump is indicted, there will be riots in the streets. What do you think of that comment? You know, Major, I think that... you think that helps or hurts the context that we're trying to (laughs) struggle through, I think, as a nation? Um, I think that in this moment, when you're 70 days away from a significant midterm election, Republicans will prosper if this becomes a referendum on Joe Biden. Mm. If we're talking about crime in Joe Biden's America and what's plaguing our inner cities, if we're talking about a crisis that Joe Biden's team has created at the border with 200,000 illegal immigrants every month crossing the border, if we're talking about inflation created by Joe Biden's spending, if we're talking about the reality that we're now into a recession and likely to go deeper with Chairman Powell's comments that he's going to continue raising interest rates and there'll be more pain ahead, it will be a decisive victory for us in November. Unfortunately, much of August was devoted Mm -hmm. to talking about the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago and that commentary and in some cases Republicans taking the extra step of suggesting to defund the FBI, I think is not beneficial to our electoral prospects. So as much as we can make the midterms about Joe Biden, then Republicans will have a great victory in November. If instead we're distracted in talking about these other issues, then I think it, it is not as productive uh, for us politically. But you know why I'm asking you about riots in the streets, because that sounded to some like a threat, number one, something that a senator shouldn't say about an ongoing judicial process. And three, in the world that you occupied representing and working with the vice president, you have some lived experience with riled up people sympathetic to the president going to extraordinary violent means. So I ask you again, Riots in the streets, that's, is that helpful? I, as I said, I think, Major, I feel that um, there is a lot of emotion wrapped up in this because many Republicans and conservatives believe that there's been an unfair system here and that it has not been blind justice as it comes to DOJ and FBI. And I'm sure Senator Graham is voicing that. Having said that, we are far better off if we're talking about Joe Biden and making this referendum on him. And that's where I would encourage elected Republicans to stay focused. Mm-hmm. So is there a decision that will be forthcoming from the vice president about 2024? And if so, when? I think his focus is going to continue to be focused on the midterms major. He's traveling much of September and October across the country for House candidates and gubernatorial candidates. And I think that if we take our eye off of that objective, then um, then we're not staying focused on where we should be. I think that um, the way that, that Mike and Karen Pence have approached every decision about electoral office, whether or not it was running for Congress or running for governor or the opportunity potentially in 2024, they will... Um, take that in prayer to say, where can we serve best? And that's going to be their decision matrix. It's not going to be based upon where the where current polling is or where people speculate lanes are. It's going to be where are we being called to serve? And that decision won't be made until sometime in 2023. I take that at face value, but everyone who is skilled in this place, meaning politics, and the vice president has a skill set, 
is not indifferent to lanes or places or ways by which whatever it is you think you're serving can be advanced. What's his lane? Oh, I, I guess I would uh, object to your premise. I, I do believe that uh, the way the pencil approaches is not looking at the lane. I think they will look at it as saying, truly, um, every time we've, uh, we've considered additional electoral office or even running for leadership amongst House Republicans, it's where is it we're being called that we can serve best? And that's, that's going to be their, their matrix for making this decision. I think there's a separate question to say, you know, we'll... we'll you know, as an what, academic matter, what is the Pence lane? As an academic matter, I think that Mike Pence has always been a constitutional conservative, first and foremost. And I think, you know, back in the back in the early part of uh, uh, the 2000s, when we had a Republican president, Mike Pence was the voice that was reminding conservatives that no, we're we're not for expanded government, we're not for Medicare Part D, we're not for No Child Left Behind, we're not for Wall Street bailout all priorities of Republicans at that time. Mm -hmm. And he was a voice there saying, come back to the standard of what conservatism is. And I think that's what he's consistently been throughout his political career major. And I think that's what he will be moving forward to. For the benefit of our audience, can you describe as candidly as possible the vice president's relationship with former President Trump? I think that uh, the vice president uh, is always going to be grateful for the opportunity to have served as his vice president. He'll be grateful for President Trump for asking him to be on the ticket with him. I think he cherishes those four years and believes it was an amazing service to the American people. Um, I think it's no secret that I think it ended in a very sad chapter. And, um, and I think that uh, the president and vice president had conversations following January 6th that I think were, were somewhat of a reconciliatory uh, conversations. But, you know, I think at the same time, um, the president uh, at some point continued to um, return, I should say, to commentary that I think was, was just not really helpful and I think was wrong in the sense of commenting that the vice president had some extraordinary power had to overturn powers. an election. He did not and, possess. And I think that that's, and that's not an opinion fact. That's a fact. The <laughs> vice president did not have powers. The former president of the United States said that he did. Fact. Again, I think, that, I, I think that there's 250 years roughly of our republic where no vice president has, has found right. that extraordinary power hidden, it doesn't exist. hidden in the Constitution. And I think that for there's you no know, magic cheat code in the Constitution <laughs> allowing the vice president to settle an election. For Republicans Correct. who think they wish that, I right. think that, you know, if in 2024 Kamala Harris was rejecting Texas or Alabama, they'd be quite upset. Hello. So, and I, and I think there's a practical sense, too, that, that as limited government conservatives, we want the states to be certified election results. Not, and those who believe in federalism. Not some, some power in Washington, D.C. that can unilaterally make that decision. In fact, some of us would even argue that was part of what our founding of our country is about, about appealing against a monarchy that had that authority. So, so yes, as, as a consistent constitutional conservative, that was consistent with where he's always been and still is. Mm hmm Whatever choice he may make about 2024, will it have anything to do with what former President Trump decides to do? I, I don't think it will, Major. Again, I, I come back to the way he's going to go about making this decision, and that's not based upon who mm -hmm. else is in the race. Right. So if former President Trump has already announced and in this prayerful rec uh, process with Karen, he's called to serve, he'll run. Absolutely. Okay. Um, whoa, that's a nice, that's always a great sound at a restaurant, even in midday, I will say. Um, for the vice president, in the context of the midterms, 
I had a conversation with him a couple months ago when he was very bullish, very bullish. Said it could be like 2010, 63 seats for the House Republicans. Is he so bullish now? I think he remains bullish, Major, but I say it with the caveat that we just discussed, being that I think that there are a lot of voters across our country who are shocked at what's happening to our border. They're feeling the pain of inflation, of high energy prices, now even higher energy prices potentially that is limiting supply in California. I think that there's there's a great frustration as well about us heading into a recession and crime. And so, yes, that opportunity is there for us. But the question is, will Republicans stay focused on those topics? Mm-hmm. And that's a big if. And if we do, I think it'll be a tremendous uh, midterm election. If instead we're distracted into um, calling for defunding the FBI, then I think we'll have a less prosperous uh, midterm election cycle. And other things uh, related to that. Well, I think also, you know, in that call, it, it unfortunately distracts from our ability to go after Democrats for calling for defunding the police. And I think you've certainly seen the president trying, president, current president trying president to capitalize Biden, yeah, on it. He did so and, this and, very and so week. At the least, it neutralizes what should be a very potent political argument for us. So uh, I want to tee this up because it's a good question that needs and deserves a good answer. And I want to give you time for it. But one of the things that's also happening in this midterm conversation is there was a significant Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case. And some Republicans are struggling with their orientation to that underlying issue. Some are reworking their entire websites. Some are saying things I said a month or two ago I no longer am comfortable with. I want to get your appraisal of that and the vice president's when we come back. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of The Takeout in just one second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome back to the restaurant Henri, downtown Washington, D.C. It's midday, August 31st. I'd like to tell you when we're doing this. Lunch will be here soon. Fried chicken sandwiches. Looking forward to that. Mark Short is with us. Mark, you heard my question as we went to break. Give me your answer. Major, I think that Republicans should be celebrating life and celebrating that after 50 years of an atrocity in this country that our Supreme Court finally overturned Roe v. Wade. I think that in a sheer political sense, I think it's fair to suggest that Democrats were not enthused about this election prior to that decision and that there's probably a reality that it, it boosted some Democrat activism. But I also think Republicans should proudly be the party of life in this country. And after 63 million lives have been snuffed out by abortion, roughly two-thirds to three-quarters of them African-American children, 
Republicans should probably be standing for life in this moment. And uh, I think it's, um, it's uh, disappointing to see some fleeing from that argument. Uh, because I think this is what we've tried to accomplish for 50 years. And I think now's our opportunity to take our case to the American people state by state to talk about why we want to have in America a culture of life rather than a culture of death. And does that fleeing, which I've noted and is visible in several statewide races, suggest to you that they don't understand the underlying purpose of this particular point of view and they were maybe just taking a what they thought was a politically helpful point of view? I'm sure that that's probably the case in some cases, Major. Just like on the left, I'm sure that some who don't understand the consequences of abortion but believe that's the constituency they need to maintain elected office. So I'm sure there's some of that. But I also And when you think, strike poses and the political heat gets turned up, sometimes you backpedal. Well, unfortunately... If you don't understand why you think what you think. Well, I th- true. And I think that's why we need courageous uh, public officials who stand by what they believe. And, I and think, you know why they believe it. And I, th- and, and I believe that uh, championing life is a great cause to the Republican Party. And I think that it follows in our cause, similarly, the Republican Party that, that stood to, to um, end slavery in our country. I think there's also a lot of parallels. Do you major. compare the two? I do compare them because I think there's a lot of comparisons, frankly, to... Um, the Plessy v. Ferguson decision and overturning Roe v. Wade in this way. It took us 60 years to overturn Plessy v. Ferguson. It took us 50 years to overturn Roe v. Wade. And in that case, there were some some more political people in the South who denied it, who said, this is going to be a political loser for us, the Plessy v. Ferguson turning that, overturning that, Brown v. Board of Education. And similarly, that you have that now with some Republicans who are wetting, well, no, wetting, wetting the bed and saying, oh, no, we actually we actually won. They should not. Our party will be much stronger in the long term for being the party of life. And if they're able to articulate to the American people why we stand for life and why Roe v. Wade was a wrong decision based upon a fictitious notion that's not found in the Constitution, we will be a stronger party. Let me ask you about January 6th and the committee. Uh, the vice president was in New Hampshire. I believe that's where he was when he said if there's a formal invitation, he might be inclined to appear. Can you describe for our audience what he means by a formal invitation and what conversations are or are not occurring about the potential of the vice president appearing? I think his answer in New Hampshire is very consistent with his previous answers, honestly, Major, in which if you listen to the continuation of that, he said... I still have significant reservations about constitutional challenges here and that a committee in Congress should not be uh, having executive privilege in which a vice president is having personal conversation with the president. Those conversations disclosed in that hearing. I think that uh, he has profound concerns about that. I think he has profound concerns of the fact that the committee is a partisan committee right now. And so I don't think any of those concerns have abated. Um, But I think he's consistently said, if we get that, then our lawyers and our team will duly consider it. And by that, he meant a subpoena. Yes. That's what a formal invitation means. More or less. I mean, it doesn't need to be a a subpoena. Are there any conversations? I think that there had been conversations for some time, you know, between the committee and and, uh, the vice president's lawyers just in general. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not reached the point of an invitation. You testified and were there. Do you have any descriptions of what you thought the process was going to be going in and what you observed going through it? I I did um, testify under subpoena. um, And uh, my my concerns, I, you know, candidly expressed in my testimony about the fact that 
um, some of the members of that very committee, including the chairman of that committee, in 2004 voted not to certify an election when there was no evidence of fraud in Bush Cheney's victory. There was no evidence of fraud in Ohio. There were members of that there committee. There was not, ladies and gentlemen, just to be clear, there was not. And there were members of that committee in 2016 mm-hmm. who voted against certifying Trump. Who Pence, raised objections on the floor. Who had no evidence of fraud in 2016. Correct. And so I, I did share that in my open in my testimony mm-hmm. in front of the committee. Having said that, Major, I think that uh, the committee handled me and, and our testimony in a very professional manner. And, and I appreciate that. But I, again, I do think that there are the makeup of the committee, I think, does provide some concerns, I think, to to people who feel like it's not going to be a fair hearing. That uh, the federal judiciary, when these questions have been put before it uh, by various folks subpoenaed, has said, no, this is a legitimate process and it has legal rights to proceed. You agree with that? You I, accept that? I did not contest my subpoena. Right. I mean, I, but I, I, did have, not, I did not participate in a voluntary basis, but upon receipt of a subpoena, then, then I comply with that subpoena for that very reason. Maybe. Right. Understood. Um, it has been said by those who represent election officials, people who represent federal employees, that we are in a climate and an atmosphere right now where people are getting threatened either with voice messages, texts, doxed. There's a sense, an atmospheric one of danger that people feel in this superheated political environment. You lived through that. The vice president lived through that in a very real sense. Do you have anything to say about that particular reality in America right now and how we can best pull back from that? Well, it's got to stop, Major. I mean, we, we, need, to, we need to understand that the, the right to vote is an incredible privilege. And, and it's, it's something that, um, that we should all cherish. And I think that there's obviously a lot of emotions in 2020 because I think there were election laws that were impacted based upon COVID. And I think it created a, a lot of problems in part, not just because of the changes, but in part because of the process and that state election laws should be administered by the state legislators, elected officials, not by unelected people who unilaterally make those decisions. And I think that created a lot of consternation in the process. I am hopeful that many of the reforms that are happening in some states are helping to rectify that and give Americans better assurances of the security of the process. But there's absolutely no doubt there should never be a threat against election officials who are simply doing their job. Two observations. Uh, Back to your earlier point about uh, locality and states. One of the most decentralized things we do in America is conduct elections. And we rely, and folks, I've told you about this, it's coming. Talking to you more about my book, The Big Truth. One of the things I talk about on that book is this decentralized nature means it is your friends and your neighbors, people that you live with in your own community that are at the polling places. And they are the front lines of this process. And it is I feel, not only a civically celebratory process, it's one of the things that's uniquely American. We do this at the local level. There is not some grand master in Washington deciding how we do elections. It's an intimately local affair. And yes, COVID changed things. And there was plenty of litigation, 400 lawsuits before the election. Everyone knew the rules. Republicans won some of those lawsuits. Democrats won some of those lawsuits. But everyone knew what the rules were before election day. My point is... The process and those friends and neighbors of yours who counted the ballots and who did the hard work did their jobs. 
and the results reflected the will of the people. Full stop. Agree or disagree? I agree with most of that, Major. I don't know that I agree on the perspective that um, the rules were set before and both sides agreed because I think there were cases... No, not necessarily agreed, but the litigation had been settled. But they knew were, what they were going to well, be. Well, there were cases when specific unelected officials made unilateral decisions such as we don't need signatures to match anymore when that had always been the case in, in a particular state. Or decisions, I do think you're right, in some cases where there was ballot harvesting or where there were drop boxes put in place, that typically was something that I may disagree with, but went through a process that, that happened. Right. But there were occasions when it wasn't a normal process with a elected official making that determination. In some cases, unelected officials taking broad unilateral steps. And I think some of those things are still being litigated. And I think that there's belief that, uh, that in some cases, the, the Supreme Court will finally weigh in on Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Having said that, Regardless, there should not be attacks on people who are public servants doing their job. That's the voice of Mark Short, segment for The Takeout, and lunch has arrived, coming up in just one moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Henri is our host restaurant. Happy to say that. Lunch has arrived. Very, very good. Mark Short is our special guest. Um, We ended that last segment talking about threats against election workers, civil servants of all kinds. Obviously, you're diametrically opposed to that, as I imagine the vice president is as well. Does the vice president at this particular moment, because there are those Trump supporters who still have an extra grind with him because of some of the things former President Trump has said, does he feel and does he operate under uh, an assumption that he is less safe than he was, let's say, three years ago, and that his appearance in a political stage creates any jeopardy for him? Does he need security? Major, I can't talk about security measures that are taken to protect the, the vice president and family around him, but... I think that you see him traveling all over the country right now, and I think he believes strongly in the founding principles of our nation and the conservative values that he holds dear, and he's going to continue to advocate them, and he's going to continue to try to work for candidates who share those values and those beliefs, and um, he's not going to be deterred in that, but but I don't think that uh, we're... I think actually, you know, I tell you that as he travels, he remains encouraged constantly by people who come up to him in airports and say, thank you for doing what you did on January 6th. I think he's encouraged More by... More of that than the other. Oh, 100%. 100%. I think there's a lot of noise sometimes in social media that's not representative of the American people. I know that'll be a shock to you, Major. I've noticed that <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> so I think he's incredibly encouraged by the reception he gets as he travels, and I, and I think he's, uh, he's going to continue to advocate for the, the candidates and beliefs he holds dear. So, um, one thing I wanted to ask you, this week the former president said that there should be a rerunning of the election and that he should be reinstalled as president. Now, I know you don't agree with either of those two sentiments, but my deeper question is, to the degree you can answer it, 
What does that say about his mindset about where he is, where the country was, and where Republican leadership ought to be focused? Is that a healthful thing for the quote-unquote leader of the Republican Party to be putting on a social media platform at 2.48 in the morning? Major, I don't think it's a surprise to you that the president's often provocative on his social media accounts. I, as we've discussed, I think, a couple times here, I believe strongly that uh, where we should be, our leadership should be, is talking about Joe Biden and, and the policies I think are hurting many Americans. And I think that uh, the more we're able to do that, the more successful we'll be in November. Something that was raised by the January 6th committee publicly, and I'd like to see if you might be able to help my audience get a better understanding of it. It was suggested that U.S. Secret Service personnel and the vice president's detail were so worried on that particular fateful day, January 6th, that either they were texting or somehow leaving messages with family members about their sense of being imperiled. And the context around it, I don't think this was ever explicitly said, was this might be their last day. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah, I I think it's one of the, um, I think, concerns many of us have about the committee. Uh, Obviously, that witness was somebody who was uh, shrouded in in secrecy and, and protected, which may have good reason, but it's certainly not something I witnessed in any way firsthand being there. Um, I was with the vice president when our Secret Service team uh, shuttled us down to a secure location. I was with them throughout. And Major, they did an amazing and phenomenal job, and they were incredibly courageous throughout that process. If you think about it from a perspective of Secret Service, it's probably the closest that a number one or number two has come since, since Reagan was shot. And, to danger. Yeah. To genuine and, danger. And, and I think that they, they handled themselves uh, remarkably well. I never sensed fear in any way in any of them. What I've since had conversations after the fact with some of those agents was the reality that if people in that mob had gotten any closer, there would have been a massacre because they would have had no choice but at that point to open fire. And there would have been a lot of lives lost that day, Major. But... That was not really Secret Service lives. They wouldn't lives. have been Secret Service lives. They would have been the Civilians. people in the mob. Mm-hmm. Right. In the mob. Right. And in that context, much is made, I think justifiably, about the gallows and the chants. How do you think back on the gallows and the chants? Uh, theatrical, performative, or real, or a danger that should be weighed uh, as we try to contextualize that very dark day? You know, Major, I think there were probably a vast majority of people there who really got caught up in something stupid that really were not there to really have any sort of violent measure. There were others, though, who did, and I think there's a different standard for that. Um, It's hard for me to contextualize in some ways because I didn't really see that. You know, we we had witnessed there were some people gathering outside our windows, um, but uh, once they had, um, had breached the Capitol... Secret Service removed us, and then we were down in a secure location. So much of that we saw after the fact, but we didn't actually see in real time. In the after effect, after the fact, did you shudder? Did that make you physically, like, have a reaction? You know, I, I probably had a stronger reaction to, I think, seeing some of the Capitol Police beaten the way they were. To me, that was that was a bigger... I, I probably viewed the gallows more theatrically, and I viewed that mm-hmm. um, uh, some of the... Uh, but the real bludgeoning of Capitol yeah. and Metropolitan Police is absolutely real. Right. And their, and their wounds and injuries, hugely significant. Right. Um, 
And on that day, I intuited this while we were covering it live. I thought, and I believe I said, Congress is not going to leave, is not going to vacate, and the vice president is not going to vacate. I have an understanding of why I believe that, but you were there. Help my audience understand that moment and that decision. Well, actually, um, the rest of congressional leadership was vacated to secure locations. I mean, I, I mean like, like leave and not come yeah. back. Yeah. I, I you mean, know, I think they, were, they, were, they I, the, wanted to stay somewhere yeah, nearby. Yeah, but the vice president didn't. The vice president, even the Secret Service, wanted to remove him, I think, because the evacuation would have been the safest thing. He said, no, I'm not going to leave the Capitol because I think his concern was the way the rest of the world would view that. And to say that here's the hallmark of democracy, they're seeing the vice president of the United States flee. Uh, so he was determined to stay, and he stayed throughout the proceedings. But in, in, in the conversations that were subsequently had with other congressional leaders, the vice president was clear to say, you know, it is important we get back in and complete our duty as soon as possible to show that democracy is going to thrive. And, and it's, you know, Did the vice president have any doubt that if he got in that SUV with the Secret Service and left, he would not be allowed back or would no, not be allowed I think to that's, be ordered back? I think that's one of the conspiracy theories that's out there. I don't think that was, that was ever really concerned. I think the, the interest to put him in a vehicle was to, to remove him from that scene. But I don't think there's ever a conversation to say, oh, if once we go, you won't be allowed back. I think that's more of a conspiracy theory that's out there, Major. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you believe, in the 40 seconds or so we have remaining, that experience has shaped the vice president, changed him? Well, I, I think, again, I think it was a, it was a tragic day that I think has, has shaped a lot of people. But I, I think that the vice president was consistent um, throughout the process from November 3rd to January 6th about what his role and responsibilities were. As, again, somebody what who the understands truth what his limited role was based upon a belief as to what our founders wanted, which was to decentralize, allow states to certify, and for him to have more of a role that just simply certifies, opens and counts, is the language the Constitutional Electoral Count Act use. That is the language. Mark Short, it's a pleasure always to sit down at the table with you. Thanks so much. For those of you watching on CBS News Streaming and Paramount Plus and those on our podcast platforms, please stay tuned to the Takeout Outtake Especial. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. We'll see you next week. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Henri is our host restaurant. Lunch is served. Very good. Glad to be here. Glad to be out and about again. Mark Short is our special guest. Uh, Doesn't in every way, shape, and form speak for the former Vice President Mike Pence, but pretty close. So one of the things I know you want to talk about, and I think this is a huge issue, it will be in the midterms, and if it's not a big issue in the midterms, it will be through the 2024 campaign. What is the status of America's energy policy? How does it affect prices? How does it affect supply? And the reason I say this is not only because we went through a summer of extraordinarily high gasoline prices. We all know that. That's not a headline. But Europe is going to go through a very difficult winter. Goldman Sachs just predicted that 
The United Kingdom could experience inflation at 22%, not seen since the late 70s, in part because of energy issues, supply and price. I know you have some thoughts on that, Mark. Run. Major, I think that this is a uh, seminal issue for us, and uh, I think that it's not just an economic issue, it truly is a national security issue, that we in America in the Trump-Pence administration had reached a point we were a net exporter of energy, and and we've blown that opportunity because of a pursuit of a radical leftist green energy policy. And I think what you're witnessing this weekend in California with requests to conserve energy, potentially rolling blackouts, I think what you're witnessing is... is a recommendation the, to set thermostats at 78 degrees. And provide certain, you know, down, power down during certain hours. And I think, you know, there, there's an absurdity that just with recently California announced elimination of, of, of gas vehicles. But By 2035, yes. The electric vehicles are powered at power plants from fossil fuel. And so the absurdity, principally, the absurdity of this policy of basically saying, uh, well, you actually won't be able to power up your electric vehicle or only going to require electric vehicles, it, I think can be comical. But at the same time, the vast majority of the components of electric vehicles are, are provided by China, communist China, or rare earth minerals produced in Russia. And so here we have these amazing natural resources in our own country. But in pursuit of a radical leftist green energy policy, we're actually becoming more dependent upon China and Russia, which is what you're pointing out is what the problem is in Europe is they become so dependent on the gas supply from Russia. And it's not just going to be in Europe that's experience it. The, again, natural gas prices are at all-time highs right now. People don't see it as much in the moment because some of gas prices on their vehicles have lowered. But the natural gas is what really heats most of our homes. And this winter, Americans are going to feel that across our country because natural gas uh has replaced uh for ele- electric power coal because it's cleaner and more abundant and less expensive there's been a sl- la- over the last decade a switch out there it is cleaner and less expensive but yet for the biden administration and others they continue to deny permits to continue to produce natural gas because they consider it a fossil fuel so even though you acknowledge it's a cleaner energy it is not something that suffices for Clear this current coal, for sure absolutely yes. but it doesn't suffice for this administration or for the governor in california and as we think about this it strikes me that there's also another part of this conversation which those on the left would point to and say look we may agree or disagree on that but climate change is real weather patterns are more extreme less predictable and the proximate victims live in places like mississippi jackson mississippi right now doesn't have clean water because of historic flooding that overwhelmed its systems Kentucky, the beautiful bluegrass state of Kentucky, has had not one, not two, but three bouts of, ma- of massive either tornadic storms or floods. People who are poor, people who live in places with insufficient infrastructure, not people who live in urban environments where there are lots of options, are being deluged, and that's the literal term, by extreme weather patterns that are more pronounced and visible, scientists tell us, as a result of climate change. Isn't that part of the conversation as well? Major, there's an important component here. I'm, I'm not going to probably accept your premise because I believe that we've always had flooding, and I think you can take any sort of uh, abnormal so nothing, event. No, nothing unusual but, going on. But I'm not going to say that flooding in Mississippi or flooding in Kentucky are a result of climate change. I, I, I think that's a step too far. But talking about the people who are hurt the most, 
people are often fleeing third world countries to come to America. And what you're basically telling them is, hey, you know what? You're going to have to pay more to heat your home. You're going to have to pay more because those of us who are rich enough to afford electric vehicles, we're going to take taxpayer subsidies and provide people another $7,500 credit to buy an electric vehicle that only the wealthy can afford because it's a $65,000 price tag. So the policies that green energy is actually pursuing are actually hurting those people who are poorest most, and it's benefiting the wealthy and the privileged. And it's something that it should be part of our conversation today, that people who should be coming to this country because they actually can't get power in their third world countries, they're trying to get a new start, we're actually denying them that opportunity because of the pursuit of some of these crazy policies right now. Well, that is voice of Mark Short. And that concludes our Takeout Outtake Especial. Thanks for being with us. Thank you to Henri, our host restaurant. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.